I was assigned to, to teach out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I read this a few weeks ago as I was starting to prepare, and I, I read through verses 1 through 14 or 15, and I, I realized, uh, I have no idea what this pastor is talking about. <laughs> like, this, is, uh, this is not good. This is not going to be a very good sermon. Um, but as I've been studying for it the last few weeks, uh, this passage has come to life a lot, and I've realized the the truth of the word that is in here is just so powerful, and it applies to us. Um, this is a gospel issue, and so it therefore applies to everyone in this room, uh, believers and unbelievers alike. And, and so I hope and I pray that uh, the truth of the word will be communicated through me. I, I, don't, I don't trust that my sermon is all that great, but I do know that, um, that the word is great, and so... Uh, I probably should just read it like three or four times and sit down. That would <laughs> probably be better. <laughs> um, no, but look, as we begin, uh, I'm just going to pray as we start. So if you bow with me. Father, I do uh, just come before you and we humbly, uh, Lord, we just want to receive from your word, Lord. Uh, Lord, may it nourish our souls and may it, uh, Lord, strengthen our faith. And God, I just ask that. Um, Lord, I pray that you would use my, my words, uh, Lord, my preparation to, uh, Lord, for you and your Holy Spirit to uh, minister to hearts. And so, Lord, I do pray, uh, along with the psalmist, that, Lord, please let the meditations, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So, if you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you haven't already. We'll start there. Um, this passage uh, can be divided up into three kind of sections, and you'll see that on your handout. Um, the first is just observations about time, and that's verses 1 through 8. That is uh, this poem that we get from Solomon. Um, that is observations um, about the nature of time. The second is just an explanation of time, and thirdly, applications regarding time. How, what, how does that apply to our lives? What do we do with that now? Um, and so as we begin, hopefully you guys have turned there, we need to remember who it is that is uh, writing this poem for us. We're going to start in verses 1 through 8, but we have to know who it is, right, that has, is writing this. And we've been going through this this whole semester. Matt and Deontay have done an excellent job of teaching out of uh, chapters 1 and 2. Uh, but we know that Solomon, up to this point, has been on a search, right? He's been on a search for satisfaction, right? And we can't get no satisfaction, right? We know that. <laughs> but he has. He's been searching for anything that could bring him satisfaction in this life. Anything, uh, anything that could, he could reach out to and attain that would hopefully bring some sort of satisfaction um, under the sun, remember. So disregarding God, what can bring him satisfaction? That is what he has searched for. And we know, if you've been here this semester, that he has searched for that in wisdom, uh, in military power, in sexual pleasure, in beauty, and gardens, and in work. Uh, and yet, none of them brought him any satisfaction, correct? You know that. Um, he explored each of these avenues to the fullest extent. That's what's been blowing my mind this semester as we've been learning from Matt and Deontay, is that he, he picked one, and he went all the way. He just just went all the way, right? If it was if it was wisdom, we know he, had, he was the wisest natural-born man 
ever. Uh, if it was military power, he had it all. He was the most powerful man in the world. If it was sexual pleasure, he had a thousand wives, right? <laughs> Just over the top, he went all the way to see if there was any satisfaction there. Uh, and what was his result? It's vanity of vanities. It's meaningless. It's all meaningless. There's nothing. <laughs> if there was satisfaction to be found in any of those things, Solomon would have found it far more than any of us could ever have hoped to have attained that or reached that. Solomon would have, and there was nothing there. Now, he turns in chapter 3 from experimenting, right, and trying everything that he could find to, to get satisfaction, and he turns from that to an observation. He's now observing time, and that's when he gives us this poem which I'll read for you guys. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And then he concludes, what gain has the worker from his toil? And we will we'll go all the way through verse 14 tonight, but I want to stop there. Uh, that is the poem. So one through eight is a poem. He has written this and beautifully. He was... Uh, a poet, we know that he wrote psalms and uh, and he wrote all of Ecclesiastes as well as Song of Solomon, uh, and he was also in not infinitely wise, but he was more wise than anyone else on earth. He was blessed by God specifically with wisdom, and so he writes us this poem. And there's a few things first that I want to observe, and the first of those that we need to just clarify is that this is descriptive and not prescriptive. So Solomon is simply observing what he sees in time. He's not telling us anything that we need to do or anything that we need to follow in this poem. He's just simply saying, this is the way it is. I have lived most of his life up to this point. He's uh, older by the time he's writing this. He has done everything <laughs> more than any of us have done. Uh, and now he's just saying, I have observed this, and this is what I'm observing. We need to know that it's not prescribing because that would get complicated in verse 3 and uh, verse 8 probably as well. Uh, we are not prescribed to, to kill because there's a time. That's not what he's saying here. He's just saying that those times come. He's observing those things. Uh, but notice with me the, the all-encompassing nature of verse 1, right? For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Again, Solomon, true to his nature, he's going all out. He's not, he's not half-hearted, Right? When he goes, he just jumps headfirst and he goes all the way to the end. And this is the same. He's uh, true to character in that. He's saying, for every season, right? And for, there's a time for every matter under, under heaven. He's talking about all things here. He's not talking about some things. Uh, he's talking about all of life, everything that happens in this world, um, all through time. He's all-encompassing. This is a blanket statement. Uh, just another observation as we begin is that you will notice the, the absence of any reference to man in 1 through 8 in this poem. All of these things happen, 
regardless of man. Right? Not, man is not involved in making any of these hap- things happen, uh, but yet they happen nonetheless. Uh, man has no part in the inevitability of the events that, uh, that transpire in life. Under heaven, he says, that's somewhat synonymous with under the sun. You guys will remember from chapters 1 and 2 that he talks about a lot of things, right? What, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Uh, and now here he says, uh, for every matter under heaven, is what he says. And this is somewhat synonymous. He's talking about all things and things on earth, right? Um, however, under the sun, as Deontay mentioned one of the first weeks, is disregarding God, right? What, anything below God, what, what is there for all the toil that you can do disregarding God? But now in this, he, he seems to be turning to, uh, turning to God having some sort of in- involvement. Right? This is different from under the sun because God is now involved. So all of these things that transpire in this poem, uh, God is involved in all of those things. So man is not involved, but God is. Right? <coughs> Excuse me. Now, um, so all things appointed by God, right? And we have no say in the matter. (laughs) Man doesn't control the outcome or the process. So it seems that we have kind of a frustrated Solomon (laughs) at this point. You would imagine, right? He has just spent his entire life seeking satisfaction in everything and spending who knows how much money and wealth and time that he has spent on all of these different avenues that he has pursued. And he is frustrated. He's like, there's nothing there. (laughs) That's his conclusion. There's nothing. I've spent my whole life looking for it and there's nothing there. There's no way I can find satisfaction apart from God in this life. Uh, It's meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then he turns to this poem, right? There's nothing in this life that can bring him satisfaction. And now it seems that in this poem, he's observing that there's we don't even have control over the clock. We don't have control of time, even. Uh, the things in time will happen regardless of us, and we don't even have a say in that. Uh, still frustrated, I think, Solomon is here. Now, this poem, 1 through 8, can be viewed as a clock. Okay? In his wisdom, uh, he presents this beautiful poem, but it's almost more than just... Uh, he's not just stating all of these things, right? There's time to be born time to die, but he does it in such a manner uh, that it, it resembles a clock, right? In his genius. So think of it this way, a pendulum on a clock, right? Most of our digital clocks don't really have that anymore, but pendulum is the big thing that swings at the bottom, tick, tock, right? And this is the same idea that Solomon is uh, portraying here. This is what he's laying out. This poem can be seen as a clock. The swinging of the pendulum from weeping to laughing to killing, to healing, to love, to hate, to war, to peace. The clock keeps ticking, tick, tock. It keeps going. It's the same idea. It's, he's trying to describe something about time by using a clock. Uh, I wouldn't have thought of this. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty wise. Um, in his frustration, Solomon realizes this, that everything will happen. The pendulum will continue to go. God has ordained all of these things, and they will continue. Uh, it will continue to take place regardless of our efforts to change it. He's still, again, frustrated. But now you see, there's sort of an irony here. So 
This is a beautiful poem. Some have said that it might be the most well-known poem, uh, maybe the most well-known portion of Scripture in all of the Old Testament. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it is certainly known. Um, it's, uh, it's read at funerals. Um, you ask just a random guy in the street, and he, he might know this if he knows nothing else of Scripture. Um, and it's known for its beauty. And yet, in this beauty, Solomon is using this to kind of draw us in, right? It's like, this is beautiful. Who doesn't want to read something that's beautiful? Like, drawing you in. But he's using this beauty to relate something not of beauty, but rather something that is broken. And so, we're in there now. We, we're drawn in. But what he's trying to get across is that this is, this is broken. This is not beautiful. As you read this passage, the amount of time it took me, probably a minute, to read that passage, time is slipping through our fingers. The time that it took Solomon to, to pen these words, he is realizing as he's writing this that time is slipping through his fingers, through his grasp, and he can't hold on to it. There's nothing he can do about it. Time is just keeps going. It just keeps on keeping on, and he can't do anything about it. Time has no earthly master. It doesn't concede its course for any person's desire or will or their need. Time is not our companion. Listen, you guys, time is not our ally, okay? Time is not for us. Rather, it is, it is against us now. Time rules us. It is, a, it is a tyrant. We are ruled by it. Our calendars and our schedules, they dictate our days, all of us, especially in college, I think we all know that, right? We have a calendar of when we have to be to class at what time, and we don't get to change that. <laughs> we have less control than the average human, probably, <laughs> as college students. Due dates and requirements, they're just looming, right, over our heads all the time. We're always thinking about what's next, what do I have to do? When you guys leave here, for good reason, you will probably go to bed, you'll go to your room, you'll brush your teeth, and you'll think, okay, what do I have to do before I go to bed? What has to be done today? And tomorrow when I get up, what time do I have to get up? I have to set an alarm clock because I have to get up a certain time. I have class at this time. I have all these assignments due uh, tomorrow, Friday. I've got more assignments due on Monday. Those things are coming up quick. Finals week is this impending doom that we're all worried about. <laughs> and if we're honest, we know we're probably not going to be ready for it <laughs> when it comes. And we'll be cramming uh, at the last minute. Uh, because there's just not enough time in the day, ultimately. If we had control over the day, I know for me, and I think we would all agree, that I would alter it. I would change things. I would add time. I would you know, slow it down, maybe. Um, other times, I might speed it up. If you're excited for something coming up, you might just want these next few days to go away, so you can just be there whenever you want to be. Um, I know how that feels. Regardless of what you would do with it, I think we could all agree that we would alter it and we would change it if we had the ability, but we don't. Monday morning is going to come on Monday morning, and nothing's going to change that. We don't get to determine if that comes an extra hour later, if that 8 o'clock homework assignment, uh, we don't get to determine if it's due at 9 o'clock. We don't get to add an hour to our weekend so we can go do something fun. Think about this just last weekend. A group of us went to the hot springs, uh, hung out there for a couple hours, and then we went back to Dan and Dan's house, and we watched Nacho Libre and ate nachos, and it was awesome. 
We spent the whole evening doing that. The next night, another group of people went and watched Lane play at the Hot Springs again. A lot of Hot Springs last weekend, now I think about it. But it was great. That's what you did with your weekend. But you guys would recognize you're far less likely to see a group of college kids spending their entire weekend at Hot Springs and watching Nacho Libre on the weekend right before finals week. Probably not going to see that. Maybe there's a few of us out here that would do that. <laughs> Procrastination, right? <laughs> um, but it's not likely. You're not, you're not going to see that as much. Why? Why would you not see that? Because there's no time for that. Finals, the weekend before finals, there's no time <laughs> to be watching movies and sitting in the hot springs for hours in your weekend. There's no time for that. We can't add one second to our days. And time isn't for us. It's not going to adjust for us. It's not going to change its path and its schedule and add time just because we uh, spent an hour watching a Netflix show and now we didn't get our homework done. It's not going to add an hour to itself so that we can get our homework done, right? Time goes on and is not subject to man. Kind of on a, a more big picture, uh, we don't control the timing of things in our lives, the timing of the events in our lives. We don't control when seasons come. We don't control maybe when the first freeze comes or uh, when there's a drought. We don't control when loved ones die, when wars break out, when we die. We don't control that, any of it. Our days are numbered and not by us. We don't even know what the number is. This is kind of, uh, it's sad, <laughs> really, if you think about it. This passage, it's beautiful, but Solomon's portraying something that's rather, like, disappointing, I would say. I'm kind of disappointed just preaching this to you guys. I, I don't know, <laughs> kind of a downer. And no matter what we do with our lives, no matter how successful we are, no matter how much pleasure we can experience, no matter how righteous or unrighteous we may live, or how healthy we may eat, in a very short time, relatively, you and I will both, all of us, end up six feet under the ground in a coffin. Right? The gloom is just building. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We're all going to end up there. Solomon knows this, and he has sought his whole life to make it worthwhile. Yet everything that there is possibly to do in this life, Solomon has pursued it wholeheartedly. And he says, his conclusion is, it's meaningless. Everything that there is to do in this time that we have is just meaningless. And he says immediately following, what gain has the worker from his toil? This is the, the beginning of the next section. On, if you guys are taking notes, this is the next point. This is an explanation of time, of that clock that he just described, uh, of the poem he just gave us. He recognizes and he's explaining the, that we are completely unable to alter or to change anything about time or the timing of events. If the poem was a clock, this, is, this next section um, is Solomon taking the clock and taking the back off and showing us everything that happens inside of it. Like, how does the second hand move? How does the, uh, the minute hand know to move every minute? It's just everything about this clock, he's, he's now explaining. 
uh, to us. And he's saying that we're all going to laugh, we're all going to cry, we're all going to mourn, we're all going to dance at times, we're going to experience love, we're going to experience hate. We're all going to live and we're all going to die and nothing's going to change any of that. And so he says, what gain? What's the point? That's basically what he's saying. Why bother? It's, it's frustrating. I've done it all and it's pointless. Why even bother anymore? Notice he, he's talking about uh, eternal gain. He's not talking about temporal, earthly gain because Solomon knows what gain there is um, under the sun. He's gained it all, everything that you could imagine. He's had it. So he's not asking, what can you gain in this life? How much can you accumulate? How much pleasure can you have? He's not asking that. He knows. What he's asking is a more eternal perspective. What does it really mean? What, what value does it have when I die? He says in verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The business he's speaking of, that's life. It's not all bad, right? There's laughing and there's weeping. There's, there's good and bad in it. But it's certainly not satisfying. You're not going to end up satisfied at the end of it. I've seen it all. I've experienced all that the world has to offer. And what's the gain? Nothing. We can't change anything ultimately. That's what he's saying here. This is really gloomy. Yeah, I feel like I should have, my first sermon probably should have been something a little more chipper, but it's not. It gets better. It does. It, it really does. This sermon even gets better, I promise. I've, I've read the last part of it. I think it's good. <laughs> but not yet. You have to go through another page or two of the gloom. In verse 10, he refers to people as the children of man, right? And that is the children of Adam. Everyone since Adam... Uh, has been born this side of Eden. Right? The Garden of Eden was perfect. Adam sinned. And everyone has been born into a world that has been tainted by sin. It's a broken world where everything is subject to time and what time brings. And that is deterioration, uh, brokenness, ultimately death. That's what haunt, haunts us, right? Time brings death. The end of our time will be death. We just got done with Halloween, right? And um, the Grim Reaper, he's kind of a Halloween figure. And we probably only see him on commercials and stuff now, but uh, that's time. I think the Grim Reaper, that's death, but that comes with time. Time will bring the Grim Reaper <laughs> to your doorstep eventually. That's a real thing, even. And it's scary, uh, but we have no, we can't determine when that's going to be. We don't determine when he... Uh, comes and knocking. The fact is that time is against us. And, and that fact is only as a result of Genesis 3 and the fall. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Time and man are adversaries, they're enemies right now. Time is just causing things to break down, causing everything to be ruined. It's causing this pain but it's not the way it's supposed to be. Romans 8.20, if you want to turn with me there, you can. I'm going to read. Sin has affected everything in creation. Romans 8.20 says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This creation, everything under the sun, under heaven, this earth, it's all been tainted by sin. It's all been affected and distorted by sin. And that includes time. That was creation. God does not dwell in time. Um, Time is a creation of his own, and that has been affected by sin. But not only it, but our relationship with time has been affected. Mankind's relationship with time. Time is no longer good. In the Genesis 1 definition of that term, God created all things and said that they were good. Um, And time is not good by that definition anymore. But it wasn't always this way, and it wasn't meant to be this way. It was better at one point. Man once dwelt with God in the garden. Um, We lived in Eden. Man lived there, and we had perfect communion and relationship with God, unaffected by sin. We'd been given dominion over all of creation, and time was on man's side at that point. Time passing only meant that you had experienced a longer duration of perfectness. Time wasn't leading to any sort of end, <laughs> in any sort of death. You were experiencing more as time passed, experiencing more of God, more of a relationship with God. There was no death in the garden. You just only traveled further into eternity of perfectness. <laughs> it's Sounds great, but it's also sad that we're not there, right? Clearly, we are not there. None of us are. Creation as a whole was good. It was flawless. There was no tsunamis or tornadoes or earthquakes that destroy cities. Um, Nothing in creation was harmful or negative to man. It all was given to man's dominion, and it was good. That is what we have fallen from. We have to broaden our theology of sin if we think that sin only affected me. If it only affected my heart and my logic and reason and emotions, it did those things. Yes, yes, absolutely. Amen to those. But it did much more than that. It also affected external things, including time. It affected all of creation. And that includes man's relationship with time. You'd Consider this with me. The pain of life is not simply felt by the content of the events that happen in life. It's also affected by the timing of those events. Events are made so much harder by when they happen, right? Someone, what if I came up here and told you someone died? You would say, oh, a time for mourning. If I told you someone who was 88 years old and lived their whole life and had grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and they they just passed away. You would say, this is a time for grieving, but we'll celebrate their life, and it was, it's sad. But then if I come up here and told you a 12-year-old just died in a car accident, how much more does that hurt? Right? If I said an 88-year-old just got cancer, and it's terminal, you would say, oh, that's sad. If I told you that a 4-year-old just got cancer, That hurts so much more. Why? (laughs) Because of the timing of that event. It hurts more 
because that person's no longer going to live. No one's going to get to, they're not going to see their kids grow up and graduate and uh, get married and things. All this stuff, it, it's the timing that makes it so much worse than just the event of death. It's not simply the what, but also the when that makes us feel the pain of life. The fall robbed us of our dominion over creation. It caused us to no longer be allies with time. We're now at the mercy of creation and at the mercy of the unavoidable uh, and inevitable conclusion that time will bring sadness and pain and death, ultimately. But notice this. Uh, This is a fact that can't be overlooked by us, especially as believers. Even though creation is tainted, the fall did nothing to affect God's dominion and rule and reign over everything. He yet ordains everything. He is sovereign over the events in our lives. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. And maybe even more shockingly, Lamentations 3, 37, 38 says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Everything has its season. Verse 1, there's a season for everything and a time for every matter under heaven. Verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This whole poem, God is in control of all of it. We're not, we talked about this at the beginning, we're not in control of it, but God is. He has not been affected that's, that's kind of encouraging. <laughs> I finally came up with something encouraging from this whole message. There's one thing. God's in control. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. He has made everything appropriate in its time. Verse 11. You can look at that with me. Some versions might say he has made everything beautiful in its time, in its appointed time. Um, but I think that the word appropriate is a better translation of that um, because not everything is inherently beautiful. So the way, as English speakers, we would hear that is that it's all beautiful and good, but there's no inherent uh, beauty to death and hate and killing. Uh, But there is something appropriate to all of those events. God has ordained them, and they are supposed to be the way they are and uh, when they are. The events and the timing are ordained. He has not got one thing wrong. He hasn't lost control, and he hasn't made a single mistake. Paul Twist says this, one day very soon we will stand before God and we will look back on every circumstance and we will proclaim his glory and perfection in his ordination. When we stand before the Lord one day we will look back on our lives and the events of our lives and we will say everything happened perfectly in the right time. Even things that in our own wisdom now we would never have chosen. Far less would we have chosen the timing of those things. But we will look back and say God ordained every one of them. And not only will we admit that, but we will believe that and we will know that that is true. God has made everything happen the way that it has. There's nothing that we could have changed that would make it better. It, it happened the way that it was supposed to happen. Romans 8.28 is kind of a, a parallel, I think, to this uh, 
but also just something to think about as believers. Now that we have the New Testament, Romans 8.28 tells us, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That is a beautiful truth. God is causing all things to work together for those who love him. We will proclaim in that day when we stand before him that he has not made any mistakes. He knew exactly what he was doing and he did it exactly right. Believers and unbelievers alike, we will stand before God and we will say, you did everything perfectly and right. He has made everything appropriate and beautiful in its time. The second half of verse 11, however, follows close behind. It says, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We do trust God's sovereignty and his timing for everything. However, we are not told to be content living in this untainted world. We are not supposed to be content being here. We know that there's better, and we know that we are, in fact, created for better than this. There's more than living, killing, healing, breaking down, building up, weeping, laughing, and dying. There's more than that. We're not content with that. Inside the heart of every person, whether they identify it or not, is a longing for better, right? a longing for eternity, a longing for time to no longer be dictating everything and never having enough time. The pain and sorrow that comes with time, there's a longing for more than that. We long for the garden is what we long for. We know that that's what we are created for. That's what man was created for. Unending, eternal bliss. That's what it is. That's what it was. Just perfection all the time. Nothing else. Just everything was perfect. You were spending time with your creator, God, perfectly, and it was awesome. And now we're not there, and we know by his grace, he has placed in us a longing for eternity. He's placed in us a longing for something more. He has not allowed us to be content with less than a perfect relationship with him. Praise God. It's just awesome. He hasn't left us there. <laughs> so if we were content with that, that's all we'd get. And it is so much less than, than being with Christ and knowing him. That's why Solomon's searchings were futile, right? He searched for everything under the sun. He searched for everything apart from God. And yet he could never find it because it has to be from heaven. It has to be from God. It has to be Jesus has to be Jesus Christ. That's the way that you have to find satisfaction in something that will please this vanity. Through the gospel, time is no longer an enemy who will defeat us. The gospel. I said in the beginning that this is a gospel issue. Time is distorted. Time is affected. Time is ruined. Time is an enemy. But the gospel changes that. Turn with me to 2 Peter 1, verse 3. You can hold your finger in Ecclesiastes. But I want to read this. I love this passage. I had to memorize it for class one time. It was just randomly assigned. We all had to memorize this whole book. And I, I got this passage, and I was just kind of doing it for the job. But now it is one of my favorite passages. And I love it. So as you turn there, I'm going to start reading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Did you hear that? You are saved to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, believer. This is the gospel. Jesus existed as Lord. He existed as God over all things. He dwelt outside of time, and all things were in his control. They were in submission to him and subject to his dominion. And yet he came down and took on flesh and dwelt with man and was bound to the things that man is bound by, one of which being time. He experienced grief and sorrow and loss and torture, physically and emotionally. He experienced death and a humiliating one at that, the most humiliating possible, death on a cross. And ultimately and most significantly, he experienced the wrath of God being poured out on him. And he was buried and he was raised to life on the third day. So that when our time is up, our days are numbered, and when our number is called, when we come to that point and our time is up, time and death do not have the last say. They don't get the last laugh. He has taken the curse of sin that has ruined time and has ruined us, and he has become a curse for us so that we can have life eternal. Praise God. Praise God. That is just so awesome. That is the gospel. That is what we are saved by, and that is what we are saved for. We are saved for a garden-like relationship with our Creator forever, for eternity. One day, time will be on our side. It will be an ally. We will continue to pass through time, but it won't be futile or vanity or hard It'll be perfect and incredible and beautiful and good in the Genesis 1 definition of that word. It will be good. I should note that that is conditional upon belief in Christ. That hope, um, that hope that Second Peter talks about that is kept in heaven for you, undefiled, unfading, imperishable, that is only for believers. That is, those who have accepted the gift of Christ who has died on the cross. Verses 12 and 13. There's a subtle shift in a mindset. Back in Ecclesiastes 3 here. It's subtle, but it's significant. Verse 12 says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is the third section on the outline. It's the application regarding time. How do we relate with time now? Then, In light of the gospel, as believers, we view it as a gift. That's what Solomon says. It is a gift. Rather than thinking that we are somehow owed time, We take pleasure in the fact that God wants us to be here. God has ordained everything, including the fact that we're alive and breathing and experiencing what we are. God wants us here. And so we enjoy it often. 
but always we appreciate it because it is what God has gifted to us. It is God's gift to man. Solomon tells us that any attempt to control time is futile. It also is vanity. Rather than trying to control what we have no control over, we must respond to the events and the timing in our lives with trust in the one who does have control over time, the one who has the keys to death in the end. That's what redeemed man should do now. We are representing Christ with how we treat our time today. Ephesians 5.16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. We are now representing Christ with the way that we view and use our time. Paul Twist again makes a helpful comment regarding this. He says, Affirm God's sovereignty and wisdom and delight in the life he has given you, not simply in the what, but also in the when. When you make this shift in your heart, you can delight and take pleasure in the simple things in life. You can take pleasure in your lot. He goes on further. He says, We are no longer frustrated with every passing hour, but we humbly rejoice in the gift of every hour. Our reference point is not the ticking of the clock, but in the perfect sovereignty of God. That's an awesome quote. (laughs) And we would do well to remember that. I would do well to remember that. We must view time, the time that we have been given, in this manner. It's a gift from God. We appreciate it. We steward it well. We use it well. That's the application. That's what we do with it. We know that time is a gift. We don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be driving home. It could be in 60, 70 years when our time is up. But while we're here, it is a gift from God. So what do we do with it? How do we use it? As we conclude, let's read verse 14. It says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So what's the conclusion that we get from Solomon? Is it to, to seek things in this world, to, to continue to seek whatever pleasure and gain that we can have because life is meaningless, we can't change anything anyway, we might as well just pursue everything, anything that we can get a hold of, right? Is that his conclusion? No, absolutely not. By no means. Rather, the solution is to run toward the one who has control over time and to get possession of the eternal God. That goes for believers and unbelievers alike. We submit ourselves to the one who can and will redeem the fallenness of time. For us and for all of creation, he will renew time and use its original goodness and beauty. Renew uh, its goodness and beauty. And time will be our ally. No longer will be an adversary, but it will be working with us to help us to enjoy him forever and ever as time goes on. The passing of time for believers, it does now and it does begin now for us. We experience Christ now. We know God now. But oh, so much more when that day comes that our time is up or when he returns and we get to dwell with him eternally, untainted by sin and unaffected by this world, with time as an ally, time helping us to just march through 
time further and further into the experience of dwelling with God and loving him perfectly. The one true God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, we will be with. And we live now in light of that. We know that is coming. We praise him that is coming. And as redeemed people, we show the world our hope in Christ by our attitude toward time now and the expectation of the redemption of time for us for all of eternity. We praise God because only in him and only in Christ Jesus and his sacrifice is any of that possible. If you bow your heads with me in prayer as the band comes up. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you have given us the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord, and that Solomon's experience can, uh, Lord, be used now for us to study and to learn from. God, I thank you that he describes time, Lord, and the brokenness of time, and we know that uh, we are living in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. We know that right now we live in a world with pain and loss and sorrow. But God, we praise you for you have not left us there. You have broken into our history. Lord, you've broken into man's life and you have changed all of that. Lord, you have made it possible to once again dwell with you eternally. Lord, that we can be renewed to the garden-like relationship that we were created for. We praise you so much for that. God, I pray that our lives now would reflect the hope that we have, Lord, the life that we now have with you and the life that we will have eternally. Lord, let us to live in light of that reality, to believe that and know that, Lord, and to always praise you and glorify you for that. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.